Hey, what's up? It's Gustavo. And today we've got a new LA Times podcast that just launched. So we got to hype it, you know? It's about basketball, television, history, and magic. Enjoy. Ready for the basketball can't feel like that to me dr bus it do so i don't know if i told you this but before i was a journalist i was a historian mm. which means when i'm doing my work as the tv editor at the la times i kind of have a soft spot for period pieces which is kind of why winning time this new hbo show about the 80s LA Lakers struck me as the perfect subject for a podcast. I mean, one, it's set in our backyard. Two, it's about this iconic NBA franchise. And three, it's about a transformative period in American life. There's just one problem. What's that? I don't know about basketball. <laughs> okay. Well, that's why I'm here. Right. Exactly. You're my basketball guy. Literally a basketball guy as in a professional player. Yeah, exactly. Thanks for saying that. You're my TV guy. And I'm glad that my decades of professional basketball experience have finally paid off. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. And I actually really do feel like the balance of our expertise is what is going to make this podcast fun to do. That's how teams work. We're a dream team. Like the dream team? I mean, I wish, but we're close. <laughs> okay. This is kind of perfect. TV expert, basketball expert, TV show about basketball. Now, we'll be able to join forces to explore really every aspect of the Showtime phenomenon, because as we're discovering, it isn't just about what they brought to the encore play, and it's not just about the culture that they created and that embraced them. It's about both those things together. People both in L.A. and around the country are going to watch the show Winning Time, and they're going to have all of these questions that they're going to Google about, like, who's Jerry Buss? Who is Claire Rothman? Why did the Showtime Lakers matter? Like, how did the Laker girls start? Why was Magic Johnson such a great point guard? We can use the show as a jumping-off point to answer those questions. I did actually, before we get started, want to ask you, though. You're from L.A. Like, what do the Showtime Lakers mean to you? So I was born a Laker fan, and I grew up in the 90s. So I heard a lot about Showtime and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Magic Johnson. And still, I think I took for granted how much these Laker teams actually did for, yes, the Laker franchise, but also the NBA as a whole. Now the NBA is this big, ubiquitous global brand, but it wasn't always that way. These guys made it that way. That's exactly what they did. When you go to an NBA game today, and you see dance troops, and you see crazy halftime entertainment, and you see celebrities courtside, that's all the Showtime Lakers. The modern NBA does not exist as we know it without that. That's Jeff Perlman. He literally wrote the book on Showtime. As in the book Winning Time is based on. So what was the NBA like before its transformation? That's after the break. This is season one of Binge Sesh. Welcome back. This is Binge Sesh. I'm Kareem Maddox, resident basketball expert. And I'm Matt Brennan, TV buff. So 
Kareem, I don't actually really know that much about the NBA now, but I certainly know <laughs> nothing about the NBA in 1979. Yeah, well, I'm a basketball player, and I don't even know that much about the NBA before 1979, but you know who does? Jeff Perlman. Exactly. That's why we drove down to his house in Orange County to ask him. I would compare the NBA before Jerry Buss to an empty shopping mall. Like, you know when you go to a mall and it's kind of a dead shopping mall and it's sort of depressing and maybe there's a Spencer Gifts open and there are two stores in the uh, food court. Like, the NBA was an empty mall. It really was. The NBA was an empty mall. What Jeff said to us about the NBA is an empty mall actually reminded me of um, this major Jimmy Carter speech from that summer of 79. I think if you listen to a little bit of it, you really get a sense of where America was mentally in the summer of 1979. And empty mall is an apt metaphor. <laughs> the erosion of our confidence in the future is threatening to destroy the social and the political fabric of America. The malaise speech, also known as the crisis of confidence speech. There was a malaise over the country. Right. There's like a low energy. I mean, it really, the, the way that it also describes what was happening in the NBA, I think it indicates why there was an audience for what Jerry Buss and Magic Johnson were about to build with the Lakers. They're saying, we need to make the product more exciting. But in order to understand why an exciting product takes off, you need to understand what the audience is for that product. And the American people are the audience for the NBA. And the American people in this moment of like long gas lines and high gas prices and stagflation, it's actually kind of similar to what we're going <laughs> yeah. through right now. Now that I say it, things were not going well and things were not moving forward. So the crisis of confidence sounds a lot to me like what's going on in the NBA at this time. And this is exactly when episode one of Winning Time begins. So Jerry Buss, soon to be owner of the Lakers, is in heated talks with the old owner, Jack Kent Cook, over getting this deal done. And he describes the Lakers like this. And then you're going to have to find another buyer for a franchise and a league that most sane people think is sinking like a hard turd in a toilet. I want to know more about the composition of this hard turd. <laughs> like, what specifically were the problems plaguing the NBA in 1979? So there were a ton, and Jeff outlined some of them for us. It was just dead, and it was having a ton of drug problems and a ton of image problems. And the NBA was a party league still. There were parties everywhere. These guys all liked to party. Coke was the drug of parties back at the time. Like, Coke was it. It was a cocaine era. These guys had money. If you're a dealer, you would try to get athletes into it because you knew they could afford it. And a lot of these guys thought they could play with it and through it. It's highly addictive. It spread super fast. And before long, it just began. It was a huge problem in the NBA. Matt, let me read you this headline from an AP News article that was about the 75th anniversary of the NBA. It reads, fights, drugs, and racial tension. 70s spelled trouble for the NBA. Yikes. It was bad. The first episode of Winning Time hits the drug culture piece pretty hard. I mean, you have that scene at the white party where Jerry Buss introduces magic to Donald Sterling and those two models come up. This is Sienna. Nice to meet you. Here we have Tasha. Have some champagne before the Coke. It's much better that way. So, yeah, <laughs> while that was an aggressive exchange... She shoots her shot. <laughs> 
There was an LA Times article from 1980 that estimated between 40 and 75% of players in the NBA were using Coke at the time. And this article has some incredible quotes. One was from a player that had just retired from the NBA the year before. And he says, quote, Coke is rampant in the league, man. I mean, 75% use it. It's like drinking water. You hit the blow, sniff cocaine, to be sociable. But I don't know why sniff cocaine is in parentheses there. LA Times style, man. Decent newspaper readers wouldn't know what blow is. <laughs> it's a family publication, Kareem. Well, then it's interesting that they were covering the NBA at the time because the other thing that was happening a lot was just these massive fights, like brawls, street-style brawls, like in the NBA finals even around this time. <laughs> I'm picturing like... A hockey game, like like punches <laughs> to the face level fighting. It was bad. These were real ugly fights. It, it, in short, it wasn't a family environment. It's so funny to me to hear this because as a Craven newspaper editor, my instinct is like this controversy, this salaciousness would be like drawing fireflies to like a lamp. So it surprises me that you're telling me about coke-fueled brawls on court. <laughs> but we also know that at this time, attendance at games was, like, below the basement. Like, 8,000 people per game. Oh, wow. So basically, no one was coming to watch these brawls. No, and no one was watching them on TV either. Another thing that I learned was that the Showtime Lakers' first championship series was preempted by reruns of Dallas. Like... The ratings were so low that they would rather air a rerun of a primetime soap opera than an NBA championship game, which seems like completely inconceivable today. Oh, totally. I don't even know what Dallas is. And that was what I would have been watching instead of my Lakers win the championship in 1980. Right. And I think actually the show kind of introduces this through the character of Frank Mariani. Come on. Jerry, just take the night, all right? We'll come back tomorrow. Who was Jerry Buss's business partner in their real estate empire, which is how Jerry Buss had the money to trade the Chrysler building, which is real, for the Lakers in the first place. You know, just think this through. We are trading in an empire of, of real estate for what? I don't know. Twelve tall guys in tennis shoes? Oh, the guy that was trying to talk him out of buying the Lakers. Frank Mariani, my business partner and personal wet blanket. He thinks this whole thing is a bad idea. Bad? <laughs> Try catastrophic. <laughs> the entire league is on the verge of bankruptcy. There may not be an NBA in five years. Spoiler alert, Matt. The NBA did survive those five years and still exists now. And in fact, I would say that $67.5 million purchase by Dr. Buss was actually pretty smart. What are the Lakers worth today? Today, the Lakers are worth more than $5 billion, according to Forbes. So that's sort of how I feel about how I like should have bought a house probably like 10 years ago <laughs> yeah. when I graduated from college. Or in 1975. Yeah, you would have been in good shape now. Oh, man. So Jerry Buss really got in on the ground floor of this massively successful business venture, which is now the modern NBA. Yeah, I mean, the cheapest team you can buy if you had some extra cash lying around, would I'm run a you like I don't have that much cash <laughs> yeah. lying around. It would run you 1.5 billion, so you can check under your mattress. And to take it a step further, Jeff Perlman says there's a reason for that, and the reason is these Lakers. And that's not an exaggeration. Like sometimes people would be like, 
they'll BS their way through these interviews and they'll say, well, you know, and it's like kind of nonsense. There's a direct, direct link to Jerry Buss, the Laker girls, Magic Johnson's arrival, Jack Nicholson, Diane Cannon showing up and sitting courtside and everything you see in the modern NBA. When Jerry Buss came in, he wasn't your traditional owner. He really was the first NBA owner to see this all as an entertainment venue. Like this is an entertainment business we're in. This is not a basketball business, it's an entertainment business. There's a huge difference between the two. And, you know, from the very beginning of meeting Magic, you know, this guy was an entertainer. And there's a there's a scene I love, and they actually don't use it in the show. And it's, I would say it's my one objection. I don't know how they let this thing go. It's my favorite scene ever. Is Magic comes to LA for the first time. And he's driving, I think he's in a limo or a town car or something, but he's being driven and he sees a tree with oranges growing on it. And he like has a guy stop the car. He gets out of the car and he picks an orange from the tree. He's like, they grow fruit on trees. This is amazing. This is a guy from Michigan, you know? So it's like, this is amazing. And I just think Jerry Buss really, he just really understood like, we need to channel this. Like this is more than just a really good basketball player. This is a guy who represents something, you know, and could really embody something that we're trying to sell. And when you're a salesman and the perfect marketer comes along, I guess you just kind of know it. And he found him, you know? I mean, it was just so clear to me from the outset that Jerry Buss recognized something in Magic Johnson that went beyond him being a great point guard and I really wanted to understand what prepared Jerry Buss to see that because what made Dr. Buss special isn't just that he understood what made a good NBA player. He understood what made a good NBA player a great salesman for the league. I imagine the conversation at the time was like, who is better, Larry Bird or Magic Johnson? And NBA executives are pulling their hair out trying to figure that out. And what... Jeff Perlman is saying, and what Winning Time is showing us, is that Jerry Buss never really cared to have that discussion because he's like, Magic is this magnetic personality that we can use to help build the Lakers. Jerry Buss was as interested in Magic for his personality and what he could do for the Lakers as a marketer as he was interested in him as a basketball player. And he turned out to be really good anyway. I think if you hear someone who watched Magic play live in these years talk about it and remember it, you get a sense of why Jerry Buss knew instinctively that Magic was the guy that he wanted to pick. There's this one play that Magic Johnson did. It's super obscure, right? The Nets had a point guard named Pearl Washington, and Magic is driving down the lane one time, He's coming down on Pearl, and Pearl was a horrible defensive point guard anyway. He's coming down on Pearl, and Pearl's planted, and Magic does his, like, look to the right, unfurls his arm, and just somehow whips it left. And I think it was Cooper slashing in and just gets it to Cooper, and, and Pearl Washington is just frozen. And Magic is just like, it was almost like he was hovering above everything. It's almost hard to explain, and it was so graceful and beautiful. And that really, like, when I think of Showtime, the first thing I think of is Magic Johnson driving in on Pearl Washington and just freezing him. Hearing Jeff talk about like a simple no-look pass as if it's this really innovative thing. I grew up in the 90s and 2000s and like everyone was doing no-look passes. It's almost like taught in textbooks now. 
Like other people had done no look passes before, but Magic Johnson made it really cool. And that's one of the things that just added the flash and pizzazz that Jerry Buss was looking for was interesting to me. I want to break down Magic's talents, but after the break. BRB. Welcome back to Binge Sesh. So, Kareem, I actually don't know enough about Magic Johnson to know what made him, specifically the generational talent that we see in the show. And this is something that basically everyone we talked to told us about him. Um, So in your mind, what's like the first thing that I need to know about Magic Johnson as a point guard? Magic was like the first of his kind. I mean, the biggest thing is he was a 6'9 point guard, which didn't exist. And there was a lot of concern. There was genuine, legitimate, understandable concern. How is a 6'9 point guard going to go along in the NBA? You have all these point guards who are six feet, six one. So you're a 6'9 point guard. That means you have a higher dribble. How how are you going to handle? How are you going to navigate against little, tiny archibalds coming up to you and trying to steal the ball? And he was able to make it work. And that was a precursor for every Kevin Durant type player you see today. The beginning was Magic Johnson. He's going to be able to post up guards. We could play him all around. He can kind of reinvent the game. We can use him in different ways. And let's just hope him dribbling against smaller guards will work. I guess that was the biggest concern, but by far the biggest impact. He was, just, he was the big point guard. I mean, I really do find that to be true. Like the operative word is reinvent. And I guess there was a reinvention because I just grew up and the NBA is the way it is, you know, very similar to the way it is now back in the nineties and early two thousands. But all that was because magic helped to reinvent the way the game is played. And Jerry Buss also sort of reinvented how the game was displayed and packaged and turned into this entertainment product that went beyond just hardcore basketball fans. So I sort of think of Jerry Buss and magic Johnson as this, marriage made in basketball heaven or this chemical reaction that you can only get between these two particular people at this particular time. And it goes beyond basketball. They had real personal affinity for each other as well. And they shared some of the same interests, let's say. The number one thing they had in common is kind of like, I mean, the number one thing they had in common is they liked the, the women. You know, like they like the women. And also, like, it's just, in a lot of ways, sort of, Jerry Buss kind of hits the fortunes of the franchise to the actions of Magic Johnson, you know? And I don't know if it was 100% deliberate. It probably wasn't, but he definitely saw Magic as sort of, he was a guy who was going to lead this team forward. And the thing is, Jerry Buss wasn't, like, there just aren't many owners who want to hang out with their players. And Jerry Buss liked going out with his players. He liked confiding in Magic Johnson. So, I mean, I guess the two the two main things they had in common is their love of women and the nightlife and the sort of desire to win and also coming in at the same time. So it really felt like there was a partnership. And I don't know, they just, they, there was just a shared kinship. What drove him to want to be involved in professional sports? Um, what, in your view, made him want to take that on? Oh, lifestyle. I mean, I think it's just lifestyle. I mean, Jerry Buss was a great owner, but he still had an enormous ego. And so many of these guys, 
see it as a ticket to celebrity and fame. I'm like, it's one thing to be wealthy. It's another thing to be wealthy and famous. Being a sports owner is a very select club, like a very select club, even the NBA at that point. And I just think he was really enticed by the idea of sort of this level of celebrity and notoriety and fame and pizzazz. Well, I mean, he ends up buying like the classic Hollywood home win pick fair. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about the kind of social world that he built around him in the late seventies and in through the eighties. I mean, Jerry Bus was getting laid like often, you know, like he was kind of the, I mean, in a lot of ways, like you Hefner was the model and, and Jerry Buss was the actuality and Jerry Buss just really, truly did have these books filled with the pictures of the young women he was dating or had dated. And there was book after book after book. And there would be women who were 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years younger than he was. And uh, he just really ate it up. He loved the spotlight. He loved the forum club, which became really his sort of castle. He loved escorting women on his, you know, oftentimes on both arms. They're always younger. Um, he just ate it up, you know, he just ate it up. You, you couldn't be that today. There's no chance. You could not be Jerry Buss today. It just wouldn't, no way. It would just wouldn't work. I just paid for her sophomore year of college. She's a great gal. You want to meet her? <laughs> uh, these ain't round the way girls. Like. Now the ladies love magic, but those are stars. Let me let you in on a little secret, Irvin. So are you. Far out, man. I love that scene because it perfectly sums up how Showtime made these athletes stars. I grew up in New York in a small town called Mayo Pack, New York. And um, back then, it wasn't like you could watch any game at any time on TV. You would get select games. And the Lakers and the Celtics were the sort of big games that you would see every now and then. And Brett Musburger would be broadcasting the games. It would be a big deal. And when the Lakers were on, especially the Lakers, they would do these shots of the forum. You'd come in, it'd be a wide shot of the forum, and you'd see like the palm trees, and it'd always be sunny outside. And then they would show the Laker girls, and they'd show different celebrities. And then you'd see like Magic, and you'd see Kareem, and Coop, and these different guys, and Pat Riley with the, the greased back hair. And it just, um, it felt really Southern California to me and like really Hollywood. And it was uh, it was magical to me. And there was this team 3,000 miles away that played in this glorious land with these huge stars. Like it wasn't something I could relate to except when I'd see it on TV. So my memories are just the Hollywood glow of that Showtime era. You know, Jeff is making me proud to be a Lakers fan and an Angelino right now. I'm so excited to spend this season digging into the Hollywood glow yeah. that he's talking about. Completely. I'm excited to get into that. You know, I might even teach you a skyhook if that's something you want to learn. I actually don't really know what a skyhook is. And you're 6'8", I'm 5'9". I'm like literally trying to conceive of the physics <laughs> by which a 5'9 person skyhook could do any kind of damage <laughs> yeah. against someone who's fully a foot taller than him. Let me give you a life hack. When someone named Kareem wants to teach you the skyhook, you just got to say yes. You're okay. going to be great at it. Binge sesh. 
Binge Sesh Winning Time was created by Matt Brennan, and it's produced by Matt Brennan, Kareem Maddox, that's me, and Alex Higgins, scored and mixed by Mike Heflin. Our editor is Lauren Rabb, and our executive producers are Jasmine Aguilera and Shani Hilton. Alex Higgins composed our theme music. Thanks to Tova Weinstock, Allison Snag, Julia Turner, Christian Stone, and Village Workspaces. I'm your co-host, Matt Brennan. Hey, yo, Matt, can you answer me something? What is a sand dab? It's like a type of fish, I think. Okay. Can I just look this up real quick? It's like a little, um, it's like a little sand dollar, but made of meat and not a oh, shell. Right? Ew, both of its eyes are on the same side of its head. <laughs> this is one of those fish that just lies on the bottom of the sand. Yeah, it's the a sand. S- it's literally like a little dab atop the sand that they... I don't know how they catch it. They like drag the bottom of the ocean for it. Then they toss it in. Um, Then they like put it in, you know, they flour it up. Then they put it in like hot butter. Mm. Brown it. I mean, if you've ever had sand dabs at um, Musso and Frank is famous for their sand dabs, which was like this era too. They're not bad, but like I can, I get why a 19 year old kid who's like in college, wants to eat a cheeseburger and not (laughs) sand dabs. I just am looking at this fish. I'm like, that's an ugly fish. Uh, Better be tasty if you're going to look like that. Binge sash. Have you ever been to Musso and Frank's? I have. Old school spot. Everything that the show said it is, it's true. And if you like that episode of Binge Sesh, there's more episodes waiting for you right now. Just go to latimes.com slash binge sesh or search for binge sesh wherever you listen to podcasts. And just in case you don't know how to spell it, B-I-N-G-E-S-E-S-H. Check it out. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Tomorrow, reparations in California and who qualifies for them. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Ashley Brown, and Angel Carreras. Our engineer is Mario Diaz. Our editor is Kinsey Moreland. Our executive producers are Hasmin Aguilera and Shawnee Hilton. And our theme music is by Andrew Eatman. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow the times on whatever platform you use. Don't make us to Puccia Podcasts. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in this madre. Gracias. Gracias.